Well, we're on the second commandment, which of course forbids graven images, and the distinctive thrust of the second commandment is not against artwork, I said last week, remember that the temple had plenty of artwork in it, but is rather against homage being paid to images as representations of the deity. And remember that this is not simply idolatry, uh, the representation of a deity that isn't the living and true God, but this is a prohibition against images which represent God himself, specifically the true God, or images that are functioning as a media through which God draws near to man. The grounds for the prohibition against graven images are uh, variously listed in Scripture as God's invisibility, no form was seen upon the mount. Secondly, God's living personality over against the idols. The idols don't speak. They don't uh, reveal things. They don't have any power, but God does. Thirdly, we should have a respect for the creation structure. Nothing in creation is to be the image of God except God's own created image, which is man himself. Consequently, it shows disrespect for ourselves when we violate the second commandment. And fourthly, God's covenant jealousy. His, he is a consuming fire. God will not allow his people to approach him in any other way but by his appointment. Then there are sanctions that are given to this uh, prohibition in Scripture as well. Uh, right in the Decalogue itself, we read that, that a curse of God rests on later generations that will not keep this commandment. Moreover, in Deuteronomy 17, we read that the practice of idolatry was a capital crime. And so here we have God's um, direct curse on the generations that develop uh, uh, this um, uh, sinful approach to him, uh, worshiping graven images. Uh, secondly, the civil magistrate is to do what he can uh, when it's publicly observable to stop uh, this form of idolatry. And then thirdly, there's a sanction that we see in the mercy of God. God says he shows mercy upon thousands of generations of them that love me and keep my commandments. And so there is even greater mercy and blessing promised to the faithful if they will keep the commandments of God, in particular this one. Uh, and I think that's where we left off last week. We, we start tonight with a new material on the biblical concept of worship. And that really is a course in itself. And as I tried to <laughs> reduce my notes and research, it became very unwieldy, so I'm just going to give it right in outline form. Biblical worship is, first of all in Scripture, distinctively monotheistic. And emphasis is found in this commandment. God alone is to be worshipped and according to the ways that he has given us to worship him. Distinctively monotheistic. There's only one God deserving of this praise and worship. Secondly, biblical worship is redemptive in its focus. The worship of God in, after the fall of Adam anyway, must focus on the joy of one's salvation. Worship is not simply a, uh, an abstract act we go through, we just do it because it's the appropriate thing to do given the creator-creature distinction, but we do it specifically after the fall of man because of God's redemptive work in our behalf, because of his grace. So there's a redemptive focus. Thirdly, biblical worship is imitative of God. God supplies us the imagery of worship and the means of worship throughout Scripture. And once you start doing a study of that, you see how rich his imagery is and how extensive his, um, his instructions are. Uh, to imitate God in worship is, uh, is a very full concept, but I'll leave it to you to fill in the, uh, the concept tonight. And fourthly, biblical worship must be regulated by God's command. Nothing qualifies as worship in the Bible that is not according to the command of God. 
And so as one instructor of mine has put it, sprinkling water on people may be a, a way to keep cool and refresh during the summer, but it is not, per se, an act of worship. It's only the sprinkling of water on the appropriate objects uh, with the appropriate formulas and with the appropriate ends. That is, that amounts to worship when it's baptism. So must remember that the only thing that counts as worship is that which is regulated by God's word and command. Well, now that brings us, I'm not really sure if I'm following this exactly. Forgive me if I do depart a little bit, because when I went today to organize my notes, I didn't have a copy of this, although I'd given one to Mickey. And uh, so I may have it a little bit differently than you see it here. But that brings us to the whole question of the regulative principle of worship. And at this point, I'll slow down in my lecturing somewhat and try to be a little more detailed, because this is a, a very um, crucial subject when it comes to Reformed worship. The, re the biblical... Uh, or the Reformed regulative principle of worship is summarized often in the words, whatever is not commanded is forbidden. <clears throat> whatever is not commanded with respect to worship is forbidden. That is, we are not to do anything in worship which God himself has not commanded us to do. Now, upon first uh, hearing, that causes some difficulty with people. Does God command that we meet in Jackson, Mississippi for worship? No, therefore, we aren't to do it. Well, there are qualifications that are made of the principle, and it must be understood properly. Um, the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 21, section 1, says, The light of nature shows that there is a God who has lordship and sovereignty over all, is good and does good unto all, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart and with all the soul and with all the might. But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. That's perhaps one of the most exact statements of the Reformed principle of worship as you can find. Let me give it to you again. The acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. In, in short, whatever is not commanded is forbidden. Now that stands over against the Lutheran principle of worship. Can anybody tell me what the Lutheran regulative principle is? Dad? Whatever is forbidden is not to be uh, followed in worship. It, it, so you have, you have to state it. Commanded whatever is not forbidden. Okay, whatever is not forbidden is permissible, whereas the Calvinistic view is whatever is not commanded is forbidden. Okay, so they are logically the very opposite. Now, in Roman Catholicism, you get even further from the Reformed principle because the Roman Catholic Church has, through history, presumed to have the authority to command things in worship which are beside the Word of God. Modernism is even further from the Reformed principle of worship because modernist churches will even hold as binding on the conscience things which are contrary to the Scriptures. For instance, the ordination of homosexuals, uh, the requirement to support missions agencies that have liberals in them, and so forth. So uh, you can see a gradation here of views. But the reform principle I've read for you, uh, you can also find this expressed in chapter 20, section 2 of our confession. God alone is Lord of the conscience and has left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in anything contrary to his word or beside it if matters of faith or worship. 
So in these matters of faith and worship, God has left us free of any commands beside his word. We are not to do anything in worship which goes beyond his word when it comes to matters of faith and worship. Now then, <laughs> the difficulty arises in that one must start recognizing some qualifications if, if you're going to be exact. And I'd like to read chapter 1, section 6 of the Confession uh, that gives us two very important qualifications. And I think without seeing these qualifications, people often misunderstand the regulative principle. Has God commanded that you wear blue socks to church on Sunday morning? No. Whatever is not commanded is forbidden. You are forbidden to wear blue socks. Has God commanded that you wear red socks on Sunday morning? No? Okay, it's forbidden that you wear... Has he commanded that you wear any socks? And I think I won't take the argument any further. You can see it, it can lead to apparently absurd consequences. But note these, conse note these qualifications. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture. All right? Inferences from Scripture are authoritative as well. Good and necessary deductions are considered as having the authority of Scripture itself. And so we must remember that the inferences about worship are also, or the applications of Scripture about worship, uh, are allowed to us with respect to worship. It's not that you have to find an explicit Bible verse that says in so many words that you do this in worship, but good and necessary deductions are also considered authoritative. And then we read on, Nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as revealed in the Word, and that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and the government of the Church common to human actions in societies, which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general rules of the Word which are always to be observed. There are some circumstances, you see, of worship that uh, are ordered by the light of nature, by you know, good Christian prudence, you know, using common sense, if you will. So the second qualification is that we must distinguish between elements of worship and circumstances of worship. It is a circumstance of worship that we meet in Jackson, Mississippi at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. That need not be commanded in Scripture in order for us to follow it in the practice of our worship as a congregation. Do you follow what I'm saying? The argument, well, it doesn't say we're supposed to worship in Jackson, therefore it's forbidden, uh, fails to distinguish between an element of worship and a circumstance of worship. Uh, it's just the circumstance that we meet at this place and at that time of the day, the Lord's Day. Um, it's a circumstance of worship that we have so many windows in the building or so many pews and so forth, and that the pulpit is here or there somewhere else. But it's not an element of worship. It's the elements of worship, therefore, which must be prescribed by Scripture. The elements of worship must be prescribed by Scripture or be deductions therefrom, or else we violate the regulative principle. Okay, so you understand what I'm saying over against the other views of the regulative principle and also in light of the, um, uh, the qualifications made. Now, what grounds do we have in Scripture for this principle? Well, in Exodus 25, Numbers 16 and 20, 1 Samuel 13... 1 Chronicles 13 and 15, in Hebrews 8, verse 5, you will notice that the Bible stresses over and over again the sufficiency of God's word for directing our worship. It is sufficient that God says something that it is to be done and direct us. But more importantly now, Scripture prohibits worshiping God by human devices. Leviticus 10, verses 1 and 2, Jeremiah 8, 31, 
and especially Colossians 2, verses 22 and 23, which condemns will worship, worshiping God according to the human will, according to the devices of human imagination that go beyond the scriptures. We might add also to, the, to these grounds for the regulative principle that in the New Testament, worship is specifically imitative of Christ as he followed out the ordinances of God. And let me read you a passage here that demonstrates that. Hebrews, the 10th chapter, verses 19, 24, and 25. Hebrews 10, and verse 19. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holy place by the blood of Jesus. It's interesting. We have boldness to enter into the holy of holies, even as Jesus, as um, chapters 8, 9, and 10 uh, are arguing in Hebrews, Jesus has entered into the holy place once for all, so now we have boldness that we can enter the holy place. And then verses 24 and 5, And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works, not forsaking our own assembling together as the custom of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day drawing nigh. And so corporate worship is included in this, that we must follow the pattern of Christ in our worship. Well, these three reasons, uh, very briefly then, can be offered from the Bible to show that the regulative principle is a biblical principle. God condemns those who worship him in a way going beyond his own appointment. Well, now we've said, however, that we have to distinguish between elements of worship and, if you will, common elements, common actions of men. What makes something a matter of worship in, this, in, the, in the strict and narrow sense, in the distinct sense that we're talking about? And that's a very difficult question. How is worship set over against life in general, if you will? Um, we could spend a good deal of time discussing alternative views of, uh, in terms of how to answer this question. And I'm just going to go to the heart of the matter and, uh, and try to give you my own answer to it. What is it that the elder says to us that is in directing worship? What is it that makes his... Um, authority over us different than other forms of authority in life. And I want to suggest that an elder needs a warrant, a biblical warrant for his particular demands made upon us. That an elder does not have authority over us uh, solely in terms of his office. But because he has the office of an elder, he has uh, the right to bind our conscience when there are commands from Christ that he is uh, bringing to our attention. So an elder must be ordained. He must have the office, if you will. But then secondly, he must have a particular ground for the specific command he lays on us. Now that stands over against a father or a policeman or a teacher or something like that, other forms of authority in life. Uh, because, you see, we obey a policeman. Uh, I'm not thinking of cases where he tells us to disobey God's word. I mean, we disobey at that point. But going beyond the word of God, we obey a policeman simply because of his general office. Okay, so that when you're driving down the street and the red light goes off behind you, you know, you pull over, you pull off the road simply because of the office of the policeman. He does not have to come up and give you a scripture verse that says, when you see a red light flashing, you pull over off the road. He has the authority to command that sort of thing without a second now command from Scripture about every specific thing he might say or do. Whereas an elder in the church does. Have you ever thought about that? You'd better because a day may come when elders will require you to do something that you ought not to do 
or things which you don't desire to do and in fact go beyond the word of God, bind your conscience in a way that is improper. And I think that is in the most salient uh, sense in terms of cash value, bottom line or what have you, when the rubber hits the road, the difference is that an elder cannot simply claim his office as elder to tell you to do anything uh, in worship, but he must have specific uh, scriptural uh, warrant for what he tells us to do in worship. Anything not commanded by Scripture cannot amount to worship. That's the point. Well, let's get on some to uh, let's get on to some difficult uh, applications of the second commandment. What about the pedagogical use of images of God? In the history of uh, Christian thought, uh, there have been those who justify the use of certain images of God because they are not being worshipped, but only venerated. You must remember that. There are two words for worship in Latin. I think it's, what, dulo and latria or something like that. But there are two different words used, and the distinction is made by Roman Catholics between worshipping the image and venerating the image, or the relic, or uh, what have you. And then, and then uh, beyond that, there have been those who have justified the uses of images for educational purposes, especially with those who are considered um, ignorant and, um, and uh, primitive. And so images may be necessary for the sake of educating people. Images may be proper in worship as long as they're for the uh, sake of veneration and not worshiping them themselves. Now, Martin Luther condemned veneration of images and, and argued, I think, fairly successfully against the idea that you can distinguish between worshiping an image and venerating an image. Um, and I don't think anybody is tempted to see much cogency to that distinction in here, and so I'm not going to belabor the point. However, Luther went on to defend the educational use of images, what is called the pedagogical use of images. Pedagogical images were defended by Luther. Over against that, the Heidelberg Catechism says that God, quote, has willed that his church be instructed not by dumb images, but by the preaching of his word. Questions 97 and 98 of the Heidelberg Catechism. So the Heidelberg Catechism says the pedagogical use of images is forbidden because God instructs his church not by dumb images, but by the preaching of the word. All right, now this is, I don't know how, what you would expect me, how you would expect me to come down on this question. I'm expecting a little bit of surprise. I am going to defend the use of pedagogical images. All right, having said that, let's see if it can be done. I think the crux question ethically is, does instruction through the use of these images involve bowing down to them? So that's what the second commandment forbids, bowing down to graven images. Right, so if we have a graven image on a piece of paper or on a chalkboard or um, what have you, if, if you have a, um, a creche you see at, um, I won't say Christmas time, but uh, when you are trying to instruct people about the nativity, whenever that is, uh, <laughs> is a, is a creche uh, inappropriate. And I say that the question really is, does instructing people through these images involve bowing down to these images in the biblical sense of bowing down? All right, here's one argument against the pedagogical use of images. Whatever image one uses of God is an inaccurate representation of that object, especially because of God's invisibility. And thus, whatever image you use is a lie, and Scripture forbids lying. Follow the argument? Initially plausible. Whatever image you use must be inaccurate 
as inaccurate, it is a lie, and God forbids lying about him. That's about all things. Well, there's some difficulty because, you see, all images are inaccurate representations of their objects if you expect an image to fully and exhaustively reproduce the qualities of the object it is representing. You see, under that perspective, we oughtn't to take pictures of our children. Is that right? Because when you get the picture back, you notice that all of the features of your child are not reproduced in the picture. And therefore, it's a lie about your child, and therefore, we shouldn't lie about our children. You see the difficulty? Uh, you, you feel that Kodak paper on which the paper is, and uh, which the picture is found, and then feel the flesh of your daughter or your son, and you'll see that all of the qualities have not been transferred to the picture. Okay, so all images are in the nature of the case because images, inaccurate representations in some respect. And by the way, the inaccuracy can go pretty far. You know that um, we use diagrams in lecturing often, those of us who are teachers, and the diagram is not intended to even give you a visual representation of the thing diagrammed. We can often use um, stick figures or we can use um, geometric forms and so forth. I, I remember Dr. Van Til at Westminster Seminary. What, of course, the fact that Van Til did it doesn't make it right, but I mean, just follow me for a minute. Dr. Van Til would often use the two circles, you see, with the double lines between them as representing the, crea the creator and the creature in the lines of dependence and sovereignty. And so um, one has to ask, does he really think God is like a circle? Or that the world is like a circle? Or, well, no, but nevertheless, that is an image. It is a graven image representing a divine truth. And so um, we don't even have to go so far as talking about Kodak paper in the, in the touch of one's skin. Images are not intended to reproduce in all respects the qualities of their object. But more important, that's a general truth, but more importantly, it seems to me, God does make himself visible. I mean, you cannot read the Bible and have a very good grasp of biblical revelation without noting that God uses theophanies throughout the scripture to make himself seen of men. Moreover, man is, in fact, the image of God. And Christ was, according to the scriptures, the exact representation of deity. And so there are images of God, Christ and man. Moreover, Christ surely gave us in Scripture vivid mental imagery for God, didn't he? In his parables and in his teaching, often Christ gives us a picture in mind, even if he didn't use a blackboard, uh, for God and for divine truths. Now, somebody could argue, well, mental images have to be suppressed too because of the commandment. And obviously, if the commandment re requires that we have no images of God at all, then um, we would have to suppress it no matter how hard, even in mind. And I dare say that if you'll stop and reflect, you all know that you have mental images of God. I don't mean that you have to think of a form of God, but when you pray and when you think about divine truths, there is some rough estimation in your mind or some symbolism that is used for that. Well, now maybe that has to be suppressed. But I'm just not sure that that kind of extreme asceticism is taught in the commandment and an argument is needed to convince me or others of that. So... It seems to me an adequate case against the pedagogical uses of imagery is very hard to make. We have yet to be shown that when you use an image for teaching purposes, that that amounts to worshiping the medium. That is, if I'm trying to communicate God to you through the medium of an image, the two circles of Van Til, or something like that, I don't think you can show very cogently that we are worshiping those images themselves, which is what the command forbids. And yet, I want to say, having 
given my my opinion of the subject, I want to say that the human tendency to worship the creature above the creator should make us very, very cautious. Pictures in the church, especially permanent pictures in the church, are in fact a serious psychological temptation to many people to confuse the picture with the thing pictured. So pedagogically, I think images can be used, but I think we better be very cautious. Now before we get into some questions, and I think rightly we should have some, I want to take up the next issue, and that is, well, what about pictures of Jesus? That's been a controversial subject in many denominations for Sunday school literature and things like that. Should we have images of the incarnate Christ? I wish I could talk around. I like to, you know, use the Socratic method in teaching. You know, well, there's this, and then there's that, and then there's this, and there's that. And so we finally resolve where we should stand on it, but I'm just going to have to keep going right to the heart of it. It seems to me that you can't deny that in Christ, God was, in fact, pictured. In fact, it is the docetic heresy to claim that Christ wasn't genuinely human. And anyone who is genuinely human can be pictured. Any human being is picturable. And it's interesting to me how the New Testament has this stress upon the eyewitness character of the Gospels. Eyewitness character. They saw Jesus, touched him and all the rest, but they saw Jesus. And undoubtedly those images were born in mind. I mean, people remembered what Jesus looked like. So I'm not sure that you can claim that all images of the incarnate Christ are sinful. All right, well then, that that is the... <laughs> if you will, the, the unsophisticated primitive argument that because Jesus is God, he's not to be pictured, but in fact, Jesus was the picture of God. That's the very point of the incarnation. Um, but now you can get the theologians have some more sophisticated forms of the argument, and they go like this. Well, a picture of Jesus must be, in fact, a picture of the divine and human nature, or a picture of the human nature only. If it is a picture of the divine nature, then the divine nature has been circumscribed in the most literal sense. On the paper, or on the, the drawing, what have you, God's nature has been put into this little circumscribed area. And that's sinful to think that the divine nature, which is immense, God cannot be contained in that way, uh, could be circumscribed. But on the other hand, if you argue, no, it's not intended to portray the divine nature of Jesus, only his human nature, then the argument is, but it is a heresy to divide the human and divine natures of Christ. Consequently, it is wrong to take that approach too. Well, I make my money in the theological trade, and I'm not going to down the profession, but I think the profession can sometimes uh, heap abuse upon itself with this kind of argument. Nobody thinks the divine nature of Jesus Christ, to the extent it's portrayed in the picture, is circumscribed to begin with. And even if they did, the Bible does say that um, all the fullness of the Godhead dwelled bodily in Jesus. If you want to be very literal, the divine nature was circumscribed by the human body of Jesus. But we, don't, we, by the analogy of faith and reading other scripture passages, don't think that somehow God wasn't active outside of the body of Jesus. So the argument fails, it seems to me, in the most obvious way. And then the second argument, well, if you're picturing the human nature of Jesus, then you're separating it from the divine. That's like saying that when the disciples looked at Jesus, because they couldn't see the divine nature, they were making this theological mistake. I mean, the fact is, if Jesus was a human being, he could be seen. And what was seen, the Bible says, was a divine person. And therefore, whatever pictures we may have of Jesus are pictures of a divine person. Not a picture of deity, not a picture of humanity separated from deity, but picture, pictures are supposed pictures of the one who was a divine person. 
But then the argument that we've dismissed already comes back in. But nobody knows what Jesus looked like. And therefore, any attempt to draw a picture of Jesus is a lie. Well, a picture does not become a lie by being non-exhaustive. We've already seen that. Um, Van Til doesn't lie to us about the creator-creature distinction when he draws two circles. And you don't lie about your daughter when you take a picture of her. Just because all the features of the object are not represented in the image does not make the image a lie. But the argument that we don't know what Christ looked like strikes me as really overdone, because we do, in many regards, know what Jesus looked like. You know, right? He was a male and not a female. And he was Semitic and not Ethiopian. And he wore a robe and sandals and did not drive a Corvette. I mean, there are things we know about Jesus and his looks and the setting and all the rest. It's just an overstatement to say we don't know what Jesus looked like. But then the person might say, but you don't know what his exact facial features were. Well, I suppose if you did some digging, we might even learn a few things, you know, about his facial features. But I'm, I'm, I'm tired of using that argument right now. And I'm simply going to come to the point where uh, it comes to a head. And the whole point is, when a man draws a picture of Jesus, it doesn't seem to me he's trying to tell you what Jesus literally looked like. Now, there may be people that are that crass who think they've been given a revelation of the exact facial features of Jesus, but I've never known anybody to claim that. I've never read of that claim, and so if it's made, it's certainly not very common. It seems to me that when a man draws a picture of Jesus, the earthly Jesus, the incarnate Christ, he is doing in one form of artistic medium what another man does when he writes a symphony trying to glorify Christ. I mean, is it true that the, that the crescendos and all of the other musical features of a sympathy, a sympathy, a symphony that uh, is written in the honor of Christ or to, to express one's devotion to the Lord is somehow a lie? No, it, the whole point is, in this medium, how would you express your devotion to Christ? And, and I remember, of course, the, the great uh, controversy a few years ago uh, when, when Hook's picture of Christ came out and was becoming... Uh, rather popular over against the modern picture of Christ. And there were those who said there should be no pictures of Christ. But getting beyond that, it seemed to me that it was of interest that the representation of Christ in the Middle Ages and the representation of Christ in the 20th century by these two different Christians should be so different. You, know, you have the picture of Jesus with the glowing face and the, and, and, and the flowing hair and, uh, and almost lily-white skin as though he never was involved in the activities of life. And then over against that, you have somebody in the 20th century with the audacity, and I, and I dare say the Christian boldness, to say, that isn't my Savior. I mean, if I'm going to show you, you know, what Jesus looked like, not in the sense that I think he literally had this facial feature, but if you want to get an artistic, um, uh, artistic confession you see, the kind of Lord I have, here's this rugged person with the, you know, I don't know what it was supposed to be, but, you know, he, he's looking ahead and, and his hair is closely cropped and he's a rugged sort of person. And that person's saying, that's the kind of, of Lord I have. Now, if Beethoven can write a symphony, you see, that says, this is what I think of my Lord, what I want to know is why a man can't draw a picture that in many ways communicates an emotion to us or some form of confession that represents his devotion to Christ and the type of Christ that he believes he is following. Now, having said these things, I want to add the caution that I added a minute ago, that the danger of idolatry is surely always present when you do this. The danger of idolatry, and I want you to underline the word danger, because I don't think you can argue that idolatry is always present. And that's the point in doing 
uh, exegesis and application of God's commandments. Is idolatry, pure and simple, to be found in any picture of Jesus, or is the danger of idolatry there? Well, if the danger is there, and I believe it is, then due caution must be exercised, but that doesn't mean you couldn't, under all circumstances, uh, forbid pictures of Jesus. My own feeling, just to avert maybe one form of questioning that will come now, my own feeling is that pictures of Jesus in the church, like stained glass windows, while they cannot be called sinful in themselves for the very reasons I've said, uh, and even the pedagogical uses of images, uh, the pedagogical use of images may come to bear there, the fact is that I know any number of people who have indelibly stained on their memory a certain conception of Jesus because every time they worshipped and every time they heard the pastor preaching, there was this one particular picture of Jesus uh, behind the pastor's back that was always bearing in on them. And I think that can be spiritually... Um, impoverishing, and I think it can be dangerous. It might even lead to forms of idolatry. I know people who feel that somehow if they pray within a church, in a stained glass windows and so forth, it's a little more uh, sanctified, it's a little more holy, there's something, that uh, the awe uh, that is necessary in worship is, is easier to um, psychologically get into, and I think that's a devastating thing. When we think that the worship of God can become localized because of pictures and so forth, then we've become to, to shade over into those areas that uh, I would deem sinful. So with all those requisite qualifications now, what questions would you like to ask or challenges made, and they're welcome now, uh, about my uh, defense of pedagogical images and pictures of Jesus? Are you going to say anything about the crucifix? The crucifix. Well, it seems to me in general all the things that I've said so far apply to the crucifix as well. Uh, the reason that is probably an outstanding example in your mind is that we all know what Roman Catholics use the crucifix for. And what that amounts to is either veneration or drawing near to God by means of an image, and therefore is not pedagogical at all. It's a violation of the commandment. There are Roman Catholics who literally bow down to the crucifix. And so you see, my argument has not justified a crucifix in that function. But somebody might say, all right, you go to a country where they don't know what crucifixion is, and you might have a crucifix so that when you're teaching, you know, the first time about the life and death of Jesus, and you say, and now this is what it was like. Jesus was nailed to a cross in much the same way that you see here. Okay, then you put the crucifix down and go on. I mean, it might be part of your, your sermon or your Sunday school lesson or your lecture or what have you. Um, while you may say there may not be a whole lot of plausibility in that, the fact is that you can't rule it out in advance. And conceivably, there might be a situation where a crucifix might be used properly. But given their common uses, they, they would be covered under veneration and worship of an image, and that is clearly forbidden in the Word of God. If you're producing Sunday school literature for children, would you include uh, pictures of Jesus? Yeah, I would. What about these, uh, you know, uh, I don't know exactly the name of them, but like in the Good News for Modern Man, they have a kind of a stylized picture that all people more or less look alike. Mm -hmm. uh, is that any better, or...? Well, I could imagine um, Christian artists arguing on both sides of that question. Um, in one sense, it's better because by just keeping it in stick figure form, if you will, nobody is tempted to really think, well, that's what Jesus looked like, or this, that, and the other. Um, on the other hand, um, it seems to me that that may be a priori um, restricting the, the types of art that are allowed in the church by saying, well, only stick figures of Jesus, but nothing else. I've always been somewhat, not amused in the sense of um, laughing down at people, please forgive me if I ever give that impression to you, but I've been, in, in the theological sense, amused by the idea that we can have Sunday school literature with all the other people there, but Jesus is always, you see, off stage. 
He always addresses people off, you know, from or in some in some Sunday school literature I've seen uh, what you have of Jesus is nothing more than his hand or his back or something like that. You never have a full frontal view of Jesus. And it, well, in the first place, if you're not supposed to have pictures of Jesus, you're not supposed to have pictures of Jesus' hand. Okay, so the hand coming in off stage <laughs> seems to me that is, <laughs> you know, that that's kind of like telling my son David, I don't want you to go into the kitchen, and here's the line, do not go into the kitchen, and so he comes right up to the line, you know, and see how close he can get, and people who say, we well, shouldn't have pictures of Jesus, but you can have his hand strike me as doing that sort of uh, frivolous thing. Um, I was going to say something else, but oh, the idea that we can um, only picture Jesus from the back or hand and so forth is the one thing, and then secondly, the idea that we have pictures of everybody else but not of Jesus, um, uh, Ted was suggesting to me last night uh, a way of putting the point that I would have made, but I think much clearer, is uh, doesn't that in fact create a misimpression because uh, uh, everybody else, you know, appears, but Jesus never appears. And people might get the idea, I mean, if you're going to argue in this crass sense that we might get the wrong idea, well, our children might very easily get the wrong idea from that. How come Jesus never shows up, you know? Jesus is always active and talking, but he's never in the picture. Everybody else is in the picture. How come everybody else has a face, but Jesus doesn't have a face or something like that? I take it that's the, the kind of argument you were referring to, Tim. Yeah, well, it came from Brian Nicholson. Okay. Impression of a Docetic Christ. Exactly. And try it. Great. I was thinking in terms of Sunday school literature, if you, you, know, you said, all right, we may have a, a, a representation of Christ. Would you, do you think it would be, you know, in terms of you were talking about the danger of making that the same representation all the time so that you, you know, you open the book and well, there's, there's good old Jesus right there. I mm-hmm. can him. Uh, right off the bat, because he's the same Jesus I've seen since I was two. Uh, in other words, you might want to be, you know, Jesus looking a little different each time. Yeah, it seems to me that the types of questions we're getting are all good in terms of the wisdom we might use because of the danger there, although we don't want to go so far as to say you cannot do it unless the Bible says that, but I'm not sure we bow down to pictures of Jesus, and so I'm not sure the commandment forbids it strictly, but because of the danger, there might be some really wise things to do, such as, uh, you know, every quarter when new material is is put out, um, you know, different types of pictures of Jesus used so that nobody ever gets the idea that it's pinned down to this, and, and then when they pray, they always have to have that conception uh, that sort of thing. Because there's a lot sure. of people argue, you know, oh, Jesus couldn't have had a beard, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Look at the picture. <laughs> I've heard people argue that way. Come to think of it, I have two. It, it was helpful, uh, it seemed to me, to have Hook's picture of Christ to get a little more um, accurate representation of a Semitic male man in his mid um, year, his, his midlife years. Uh, <laughs> so, okay. Sir. Draw out your argument. I'm not. What's that? The young child. If we cause him to draw straight. Oh yes, I see. Well, but in many areas of life, we don't argue that way, it seems. Um, let, let me pursue some analogies, and, and 
by all means, the truth of what you're saying has got to be borne in mind, because it is a danger. We've, we've got to be aware of all those prohibitions and warnings in the Bible about millstones around the neck and, and being a stumbling block to a brother and all that. So, uh, And you know from my lecture on that subject, I, I hope that I, I duly reflected a sense of, uh, of um, the sanctity of that consideration. But on the other hand, look, it's a, if I drive home in my car tonight, there's some danger that I'm going to hit somebody. There is the danger there that I might cause an accident or run over somebody and be guilty of murder, or manslaughter, more specifically. But that doesn't keep us from using our cars. Or in eating my dinner tonight, there was the danger that there might be a poison in there. I'm not intentionally put there even, but there's the danger that something may have gone foul in the refrigerator, and, and my wife using it as an ingredient poisoned the family. So do we not eat? No. The point of saying that there's a danger there is to say that when you use these things, use them with all the requisite caution that God would have you uh, exercise. So now let's go back to the drinking illustration. To the degree that the Bible would allow a Christian to drink, the danger that is involved there of not using moderation or of leading a, a, a weaker Christian into sin uh, causes one to be very cautious when he's getting ready to take it. It's not as though he's you know, always going to be looking around. But, I mean, one's got to think about the occasions, the circumstances, the motivation and all that when he does have a glass of wine with his dinner and those with whom he might have it. But it doesn't seem to me that it warrants forbidding it altogether. A danger doesn't mean that it's wrong. A danger means that it can only be used with caution. And so I'll drive home cautiously tonight if I'm a good Christian and I'll eat my dinner with caution and, and, and the rest. Um, uh, I'd like to hear your response to that. Well, I didn't take a drink until 28 years. The first drink, I was in an argument. And now my throat was dry in a football game. <laughs> <laughs> I was in an argument. And somebody stuck my, a, a drink, an orange drink in my head. It's gin in it. And I was sipping that stuff because my throat was dry. <laughs> Why do you have to have the door open? You see, because within a month and a half, I was offering people mixed drinks. I just went in an argument. Somebody stuck my a drink, an orange drink in my hand, and it's gin in it. Uh -huh. And I was dipping that stuff because my throat was dry. <laughs> well, that, the devil had his foot in the door. Now, how, how wide do you have to have the door open? You see, because within a month and a half, I was offering people mixed drinks. They, they could order anything they wanted to. I had a bar. Mm -hmm. I had never taken a drink before. Mm. I, I know how deceptive this thing is in life. And it, it's better, you see, if, if, if it's not for the glory of God, mm -hmm. don't do it. Well, I think you're absolutely right that if, if, it, if the taking of the drink because of... Um, either our own spiritual um, lack of maturity or for uh, uh, social reasons or even biological reasons uh, was going to lead us into sin or to uh, a kind of uh, irresponsibility that was not pleasing to the Lord, then the, the requirement is, is clear in the Bible. You don't do it at all. But, you see, that ha we have to respect individual circumstances and to say that that is what happened in a particular case and therefore it's forbidden to all is that's the step that goes a little bit further than the logic would warrant. And uh, so I'm agreeing with you in your principles, and I would agree that, that if you had a drink and a month and a half later you're indiscriminately having this, that that was... <laughs> well, uh, there's something too, you know, growing up in the Lord and, and, and learning what the proper inferences are. 
there are young people undoubtedly who have the idea that if they hold hands with their date, that means that um, in a couple of weeks uh, free sexual conduct is also allowed, um, which is not in all regards parallel to your illustration, but I'm simply trying to show that uh, that shows that the training of the young person has been inadequate and their conception of Christian ethics is inadequate. Uh, but on the other hand, I don't want to say that it's in all cases improper to hold hands before marriage. But maybe when we get to the Seventh Commandment, you'll want to say something about that, too. <laughs> Greg? I was thinking along the same lines. Um, we, uh, we all assume, and I think uh, rightly so, that, that everything, every word that God puts in the Bible, uh, He put it there wisely. But then you come up, up with uh, specific uh, passages like, uh, in order to love me, you must hate your parents. And that comes out in real life with uh, such people as the children of God. Mm. They take that to an extreme. And so are we to assume that, that God was unwise in putting that passage there? Or are we, uh, and that he shouldn't have put it there at all? Yeah, that's a, I think that, that's, a, that's a good insight. That, uh, that God has such passages to be read in context and with all the other balances and qualifications in the scriptures. And wine is a mocker. <laughs> and uh, has been for many people, and, uh, and drunkenness is a great sin, and, and bedevils many. But uh, the Bible also teaches that it's a source of comfort and, uh, and uh, relaxation, and it is to make, the wine was given by God to make the, uh, to make the heart merry. And uh, at the appropriate time, Jesus made the best wine I think earth has probably ever seen at the wedding of Canaan, uh, Cana. And consequently, with all the balancing it seems to me we have to do justice to every jot and tittle and, and, and not just one side or the other. Let me go now to the... Go ahead, Chris. Um, back to one question that rose in my mind. What about, like, jewelry, crosses and things like that, those religious symbols that are used in jewelry, would that be considered graven images or is that just... Well, again, the, the crux question is how are these being used? To what end are they... Uh, used. What's their function? And there are people who, by wearing a cross, think that they are giving a testimony for Jesus, or uh, there are people who pray to crosses. Um, and, you know, there are many illustrations that one might offer uh, how religious jewelry is, is very inappropriate and, and, and uh, well, that's not strong enough, forbidden by the commandment. Um, I can't see much, I, I'm, this is kind of a cultural and aesthetic remark, I can't see much use for wearing a cross apart from it representing the cross of Christ, but I suppose somebody might want to argue, well, it's one geometric form and other people might wear diamonds, I don't mean, you know, the, the, the stone, but diamond shape or uh, something like that. Well, as a testimony, if it's a pedagogical use of the image, okay, trying to teach others and so forth, then that'd be all right. And of course, the fact that you have pedagogical images doesn't make every image um, appropriate. Uh, in other words, I think there's something to be said for why is it that we stress the cross of Christ when in fact the Bible stresses what? The resurrection of Christ and his ascension on high. If anything, we should be wearing thrones around our necks, you know? Isn't that right? Not even empty tombs, but you see, he's Lord of Lords. This one that the world considered a criminal. You see, is really the king of kings. And so, um, I don't want to say that in genre, 
Uh, a cross has to be wrong. It could be a pedagogical image that might be put to proper use, but I'm not sure my, in my own way of thinking that it's the appropriate pedagogical image if you're trying to witness to somebody. Um, I had a Christian, um, professing Christian philosophy teacher once who um, always made a great deal of the fact that A.E. Taylor, who probably is not known to many of you, but he's kind of, he was an idealist uh, uh, earlier in the century, A.E. Taylor always wore a cross in his lapel, and he thought that was such a wonderful sign of his religiosity. And um, never struck me as necessarily all that religious a thing, or necessarily a you know a fine testimony that just you know, because a man wears a cross, I would have much rather A.E. Taylor wrote as a Christian in his philosophy than writing as an idealist who had a cross in his lapel. Greg, uh, I'm thinking about uh, any time you're talking to Lutherans about this idea of, uh, of pedagogical use and, uh, and a, a worship use of images. Um, what rules would you tell, you know, in order to determine whether he's using it worshipfully or uh, pedagogically, how would, you, uh, how would you be able to know that? Well, by knowing the difference between instruction and veneration. I mean, does he think there's something kind of holy about the image? Does he have a more religious feeling about it when he's in its presence? Or, uh, you know, there are a number of things. It's, I don't th what I'm trying to suggest is it's not really all that subtle. Instruction would be, I mean, if I, if I drew a picture up here of a man doing something and I said, uh, and I mean, if I was good at it, if I was, uh, you know, if I could make a chalk drawing and, and fascinate you like uh, Bill Gothard might or Vic Lockman or somebody like that, um, and, and, and it helps to get the point across, you know, because you're watching and you're paying better attention, and it's also helping illustrate the points as I go along. seems to me that would be a pedagogical use of images that would be perfectly acceptable. But now if you take that picture, somebody comes up after the class and says, oh, that was such a wonderful lesson, I've got to have that picture, I'm going to put it up in my bedroom and pray every day right underneath that picture, <laughs> then I think you have a hint that it's veneration, <coughs> and not just instruction. But doesn't there seem like there could be a... Foggy area where an instructional use might might uh, run into a a worshipful use. Well, give me an illustration. What would be such a foggy area? Well, just that you know, like uh, you come into a church and you see a, a picture of Christ, and and that uh, reminds you of all the things of Christ, and almost in a a, a real uh, visionary sort of remembrance of. Uh, of what Christ has done on the cross and what, he's, uh, what, he's, what he has done in life, you know, etc. So it's a reminder. Yeah. Well, that's instruction, it seems to me. Where's the veneration come in? What just in, in the, uh, the veneration comes in when the person says when things are going rough, I want to get back to that room where all those reminders were. All right? That becomes then an attachment that strikes me as, uh, as a medium of worship then, where God apparently draws closer to you just because of that. And that's very dangerous. Uh, that's veneration. But it seems to me one could walk into a room and see a picture of Christ and say, that's right, I remember what he did for me. And that's instruction and nothing improper about it. But I've already told you, it seems to me that there's not much human wisdom or common sense involved in actually putting up a picture of Jesus that's permanent in the church just because, I mean, we're human beings and we know the temptation to worship the creature rather than the creator. And uh, we have psychological, uh, psychological crutches and so forth. And... So I'm not at all inclined uh, to agree with people who say that because it's all right in some senses, we can go ahead and have a stained glass window. If, if you would, if I were in a congregation voting on a stained glass window, 
Uh, this is putting it crassly, but I'd vote against all stained glass windows on principle, but not the principle that they violate in themselves the Second Commandment, the principle that they are a temptation to violate it, which is so obviously a temptation. It's, you know, it's like taking a, uh, a man who's been a drunkard and, and you know, and, and waving Jack Daniels under his nose and saying, wasn't it nice, remember when? I mean, that would be, a, you'd say, well, that doesn't make him drink by itself. I mean, that would just be a horrendous, uh, uh, you know, use of your liberty as a Christian. It would, in fact, pre present a stumbling block that we oughtn't to present. So the principle that would be violated is not the Second Commandment per se, but it's the Second Commandment secondarily in terms of the stumbling block it would offer to many. Am I making sense? Yeah. Okay. Great. No, <laughs> we can after we talk about uh, after we talk about uh, exclusive psalmody. There are those who um, who argue that the regulative principle, whatever is not commanded is forbidden, means that we can't sing anything in worship but psalms from the Bible. There is no command in Scripture to sing anything but psalms. Therefore, we can't sing anything but psalms. Yes, and the argument is that in Colossians 3.16 and in Ephesians 5.19, where we read of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, that those are really different designations for three elements of the Psalter. Uh, now, this wasn't where I was in my lecture, but following that along, the fact is that's just an unconvincing argument. Uh, when I was a seminary student, I did some research into that, and I couldn't find any evidence that that was a, a basic division of the Psalter, those three words. And so it's unconvincing at best. And then also, um, what are we to make of these spiritual songs? That doesn't say inspired songs, does it? It says spiritual songs. Well, um, G.I. Williamson argues that when Paul speaks of spiritual songs, he means inspired songs. But if you look at 1 Corinthians 3.1 and Colossians 1.9, you'll see that the word spiritual, uh, pneumatikos, is used for... Uh, a man who is spiritual uh, under the influence of the Spirit and not for one who is inspired by the Spirit. Consequently, um, Greg's beat me to the punch. It does seem to me that the passage of speaking of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs goes far beyond the Psalter. Um, but I want to give another argument totally apart from the, the, the one used here. Uh, those who say that we are not to sing anything but psalms in, in worship because only psalms are mentioned have to show and prove that a song is an independent element of worship. Remember what we said in terms of the qualification? An element of worship must be prescribed or else it's proscribed. That is, if it's not um, laid down, then it's forbidden. But is song an independent element of worship? Well, look at Colossians 3.16. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You see, song is not an independent element of worship. A song is a form of teaching, praise, and admonition. It turns out that the biblical concept is that prayer, praise, and teaching is done by means of song. So it's not an independent element. In other words, the Bible doesn't tell us where to come together and just sing per se. It says that our singing is a form of exhorting, is a form of praying, is a form of praising. Consequently, um, because extra scriptural words are surely to be allowed in preaching, and since the song is a form of preaching, and extra scriptural words are allowed in prayer, and song is a form of prayer, then it seems to me that extra scriptural songs are allowed as well. 
By the way, that argument can be bolstered by the fact that there is no sharp distinction in linguistic um, philosophy, and I don't mean by a school of philosophy, but I mean in, in the phil uh, philosophy of language and uh, human utterance. There is no sharp distinction between sung and spoken word. There are some people who preach so well that we go out, and it's not purely metaphorical, we say, you know, he virtually sang to us tonight. What's the difference between chant and singing? What's the difference between chant and preaching? What's the difference between preaching with rhythm and chanting? You know what I mean? When you start looking at it, you see that there's a continuum between the very didactic and, and staccato type of speaking that I do and the sing-songing kind of preaching of somebody who's a, a, a well-tuned orator and then the chanting and then finally the singing. It just, they're really all part of one speech act. It's just a question of how you're doing It's a matter of rhythm and rhyme and all the rest. So I don't think that any good argument can be made that uh, only psalms can be sung. And if you're not convinced, and I have one, one more way of approaching this, please notice that it isn't only the psalms that are to be sung according to God's word. In Psalm 119.54, God's statutes are to be sung. I don't want to miss this. Psalm 119.54, God's statutes are to be sung. In Psalm 107, verse 22, God's deeds are to be sung. So we are to sing the saving deeds of God. We're to sing the statutes of God. Wrong reference? Oh, Psalm 107, verse 22. One last question. How about instruments in worship? You can't read the Psalms without seeing that instruments are commanded in worship. Worship God upon the timbrel. Worship God upon, you know, the flute and the lyre and all the rest. So, with stringed instruments and organs and all the rest. You know, I don't know if it means organs like we have them, but... Um, now those, it's interesting to me, um, and I know that we're getting out of time, but I can't help make this remark. <laughs> you know, there's something taking hold of me, I just have to say it. <laughs> It is fascinating to me that the people who believe in exclusive solemnity almost always correlate with those who believe that instruments are not to be used in worship. Now that is an irony if ever there has been one. Because the people who believe we're only to sing psalms, because only the Bible mentions psalms, are the very people who say the Bible says we're to use all these instruments, but we're not supposed to. I mean, it, it just seems to me their theological method is like this. I mean, it's just working at cross grains to... Well, how do they get around that? They say, well, the only commands to use instruments in worship are connected with temple worship in the Old Testament. And since temple worship has expired, so has uh, singing to God with instruments. Well, I agree that temple worship has expired. I don't agree <laughs> that, uh, that singing to God with instruments was, uh, was one of the elements of temple worship that was foreshadow of the person and work of Jesus Christ and therefore... Um, uh, expired as were sacrifices and all the rest. There doesn't seem to be any argument in the Bible can be found to that effect. And then finally, if you're not convinced yet, I would simply say that an instrument is a circumstance of worship and not an element of worship. It is a circumstance of worship. Just like we open the windows on a hot day, so we also have a piano to help us keep on tune. So, Any questions quickly about the second commandment? amazing. Over an hour, just on the one. You think we'll make it in the remaining hour on the others? At least this moral point can be made, and I will keep making it. Um, I'm not doing justice to any of the questions we've raised thus far. I hope you've all seen, I mean, if not, I'm 
the pain on my face, the fact that I'm telling you over and over again, we're not saying enough on each one of these questions. But if we're taking this much time and only a couple of these, you can imagine how much work is to be done. There's all sorts of things we as Christians should be studying, and we just haven't done it. And consequently, when we do get around to doing it in a Monday evening class, we find that there just isn't enough time. Well, having said that, I will charge ahead to the third commandment, not taking the Lord's name in vain. And um, I'm not going to do justice to it. Literally, you shall not bear the Lord's name in an empty way. The commandment in Hebrew reads, you shall not bear or carry the Lord's name in an empty way. And in my outline, I wanted to stress the significance of the name, the significance of the bearing or taking, the significance of vanity. Um, and very quickly, one sentence for each one. The name of God represents all that God is, not simply some linguistic token. Okay, in, in Scripture, God's name is everything. So any time that we, that we sin, we are taking God's name in vain. In other words, we're violating his person. Uh, taking the name, the lifting up of the name. Um, in Psalm 24, verse 4, um, it's interesting that the psalmist sees the lifting up of one's soul to vanity as sinful, and he's using the very form of expression of the third commandment. 24.4 He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, or unto falsehood. Um, the lifting up is, is the taking of God's name and all that it represents, and that represents us, too. And remember how Jesus exegetes the commandment? You see, the very sly Pharisees in his day, they wouldn't swear by God's name. They wouldn't take his name in vain by saying, if such and such, then let God strike me dead. They'd say, well, I swear by Jerusalem, or I swear by the Holy Land, or I swear by this. And Jesus says, you're not fooling anybody. Because you see, all the earth is the Lord's. And consequently, when you swear by anything, you're swearing by God. There's no such thing as an oath that isn't swearing by God. All right, so there, there's the lifting up, the taking the name unto vanity. Any frivolous use of God's name, any false use of God's name. And it hits pretty hard for Christians, especially. And um, uh, I'll tell you, I am so convicted myself when I, when I read my notes and think about the Bible at this point, I, I almost dare not teach it. But, you know, we take the name of Christ and we lift up his name in vain when people know that we're Christians and then we behave in a way that's not becoming of, of, uh, of Christians. Uh, what a violation of the third commandment that is. The false profession of Christ, hypocrisy to be sure, but even those who truly profess Christ but uh, take his name in a way that doesn't do honor to it. Well, let's ask about some particulars here. How about blasphemy? How can I summarize what I want to say about blasphemy here? Hmm... You realize that um, the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And consequently, blasphemy is a particularly serious crime in the Bible. The death penalty was to be administered for it. And notice that in Leviticus 24.15, the death penalty was to be administered even to strangers for blasphemy. It wasn't just because you were an Israelite that you weren't to do that. And the worst sin that Jesus noted, what is the worst sin of all according to Jesus? blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So, um, in all these ways, please note that blasphemy is a, a especially serious crime. Violation of the Third Commandment is uh, to be taken very seriously. Uh, the question of oath comes up here. When Jesus was indicting the Pharisees... Go ahead. Yeah, 
Blasphemy is cursing the name of God. Oh, boy. Well, we won't get out by 9 o'clock now. <laughs> All right, 10 o'clock. Um, let me be honest and open and fair about this. There are many views of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Here's one man's view. Okay. I, I mean, I think that there's biblical warrant for this. But I think blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is, uh, is committed when a person rejects Christ and curses Christ when there is um, culpable and overwhelming evidence of his deity present to him. Jesus used that reference when the Pharisees should have known by his miracles and his words that he was the Son of God, and yet they, um, they accused him of doing things by the power of Satan and all that. He said that's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Attributing to Satan, or attributing the works of Satan to the Holy Spirit, or vice versa. That's, that's cursing God's name, essentially. Go ahead. It's unavoidable. Go ahead. <laughs> Uh, that, that just opens up a real can of worms. <laughs> um, I told you. Is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit just defined as attributing to Satan the works of God? It seems to me that... The evident know, works of God. Okay, but uh, it's, it, well, it seems to me that the very close akin to this is the argument that our Pentecostal brethren like to use very quickly the minute you begin to question any of their practices. Mm -hmm. And... Um, it just seems to me that that, that could be used as such a blanket that I'm very hesitant to apply that particular definition. What you said first, I have very little difficulty with. But, um, well, now remember that I'm not giving you a strip. I mean, I haven't read anything from my notes on that. I was just giving a, you know, off-the-cuff uh, way of putting what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. But even if it even if it uh, stands all right by itself, the fact that it's a blanket statement and can be abused doesn't make it wrong. In other words, you oughtn't to be cautious of things just because people abuse them. You ought to be cautious of the way people abuse them. Um, and when a Pentecostalist, when I say to a Pentecostalist, well, perhaps what you call tongues might be Satan's diversion rather than the work of the Holy Spirit. He says, well, now be very careful. That may be blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Then two things can be said. One, that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is committed when there is no question but that this is the work of God. I mean, when Christ was doing such and such as the very Son of God, uh, nobody had any excuse. But at least the Pentecostalists should grant that there's some ambiguity in question, because even they question some utterances. In other words, if there wasn't an interpreter, or if the interpreter started saying things that you thought were a bit shady, and so forth. So the very questioning cannot be said to be blasphemy uh, against the Holy Spirit in that, in that way. So they are just wrong, even with my blanket definition. But secondly... I wouldn't say that sort of thing unless I had a good biblical warrant for it. And if there's good, at least prima facie, biblical warrant, then one is not going to be intentionally trying to do despot to the work of God by saying, well, that work of God, that evident work of God is in fact the work of Satan. What we're doing there is saying, with all due caution, I think the Bible teaches that um, what you are engaging in is not biblical tongues. And, and as such, it could conceivably be a diversion of Satan. It could be a psychological release, too. And God can use psychological releases, and God can even use the diversions of Satan to his own glory. Uh, I guess I'm going to have to... I thought I'd stay out of it myself, but I... I was thinking of Gary North's book, uh, Mundo Call It Witchcraft, and one of the things he mentions is, for example, uh, Arago, that, uh, that Brazilian doctor who uh, uh, would go and, and he could just, you know, he just reach into somebody's eye and just stick yeah. a knife in there and just... And, you know, it'd be fixed. 
And uh, there's no doubt at all that there was, you know, healing taking place. Now, Gary North, to be honest, you know, to be fair to him, is saying, all right, what's happened is you get a man bound, you know, and then you just kind of loosen the knots a little bit so you can bind them tighter uh, in the end. The idea was that that was a perception to make the person dependent yes. upon, upon yes. uh, demon possession. And yet, uh, you know, I can understand that, and yet, on the other hand, you, not everybody did that. Uh, I don't know, you know, I don't know particularly what Monarago did. Uh, but you see healing like that, and you say, well, now, who did that healing? And was that healing? You know, it, gets, it ties in with the Pentecostal question. Mm-hmm. Well, our resident medical expert will tell us the answer to that question. Um, to whom does this doctor attribute the glory for this um, wondrous ability? I'm not sure whether he did to himself or whether he did to Jesus, but I understand he usually, he usually said it was Jesus. Okay. I thought he said it was the dead doctor, not the doctor. The no, no, he said he, he would be Dr. Fritz, but then he always, he always said it was Jesus. Mm-hmm. Well, let, let us assume, totally apart from what the facts, because apparently there's some confusion here, <laughs> let's assume that a man did these sorts of things and attributed it to Jesus. Well, should we be cautious in attributing it to Satan? Yes. Does it mean we can't attribute it to Satan? No. Because the argument would still have to be answered. Does God give these, uh, these miraculous gifts uh, apart from the apostolic uh, confirmation and uh, the whole... The argument with respect to miracles would have to be made. Um, when a man is not using it to, to divide the church of Jesus Christ, that's another thing, too, that you, know, you want to be a little bit cautious um, in light of the use to which it's being put. That doesn't justify it. But when a man does these things and attributes it himself to Satan, it's another matter, which is what I understood in the context of Mr. North's book or Dr. North's book on witchcraft. But uh, Satan could, could give wonder-working abilities even to Christians, it seems to me, if it enabled people to become dependent upon that Christian and diverted from the real work of Christian nurture and edification and have a hankering for miracles. I mean, that isn't beyond an angel of light to think of that kind of scheme. Well, the reason why I wonder that is because the thing is, how can, you know, the, the, whole, the, whole crunch, the whole thrust of Jesus' answer to the Pharisees when they said, you know, he's doing this by the elder book, was how can, how can you... Uh, plunder the strong man's house unless you first bind him. Uh, that's the whole thrust of his argument. And if you say, well, other people can do it, but Jesus couldn't have done it, then it seems to destroy that argument. That he couldn't have done it? No, no, no. The argument is not that he couldn't have done it, but that by his word he says he doesn't do it. But then again, um, you see, what we're bringing up are particularly difficult questions for interpretation and what are the facts and so forth. What I'm trying to give you here are in terms of ethical principles that have to be applied about blasphemy. Okay, um, and I'd have to read up on that particular case. But I mean, it never hurts for a Christian to stand back and say, "I don't know," and have to look at it again. And um, due caution is called for before we attribute it to Satan. But all I'm saying is, it is not a priori ruled out just because it, it does nice things for people that it couldn't be by Satan. He is an angel of light, by which I take it that he can portray his works and his uh, person in a very admirable way when he has to. I think there are people in the pulpit, to be very frank with you, who are angels of light. 